Good morning. My name is uh, Alvin. Uh, you best know me as Jacob's father. Uh, I was going to say all the brother, but you would have figured it out anyway. Uh, good morning. Today's reading comes from the Gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, and then 1 to 11, excuse me, and then verses 13 to 18. Please follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen, or simply listen as the scriptures are read to us. That's John chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, 13 to 18. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool and kindergarten, you're invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join us in kids' comments upstairs. So, as you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear then the word of the Lord. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread out the mud for the blind man's eyes. He said to him, Go, wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was. Others said, no, he just looked like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. And I jumped to verse 13. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees, because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. So when the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could not see, so they called his parents. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Katie, and I'm on staff here at Haverhill Commons, and it's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. As we open God's word, I invite you to take a moment to pause, to recenter yourself before the Lord. I'll close us in a few moments in prayer.
Dear Jesus, we thank you for this morning together to worship you. We pray that you would help us release our distractions so that we can be fully present in your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I have to admit that it took me a little while to jump on the podcast bandwagon. And while I'm on it now, I usually can only keep up with maybe one or two at a time. One of my favorites recently has been a podcast called You're Wrong About. It's a podcast by two journalists, Sarah and Mike, and each week they do a deep dive on a historical event, figure, or phenomenon that's been miscast in the public imagination. They present all the facts and debunk all the ways that the media and culture have incorrectly portrayed them. One of my favorite episodes that I've listened to so far is one about Anastasia Romanoff. Now, everything I knew previously about Anastasia pretty much came from the animated movie. So, you know, super historically accurate account considering there's a talking bat. Um, in case you've never seen the movie, <laughs> basically what happens is that after the Russian Revolution, the royal family, the Romanovs, are all killed by a sorcerer named Rasputin, except their youngest daughter, Anastasia, escapes through a secret passage and she gets away. At some point during her escape, she bumps her head and loses all her memories, and she ends up living in an orphanage with no idea that she is a Russian princess. Now fast forward about 10 years later, and we find out that Anastasia's grandmother also somehow survived and is living in Paris. She's also offering a reward to anyone who can bring her granddaughter back to her. Which brings us to Dimitri, a con man who decides to find an actress and have her play the part of Anastasia so he can claim the reward. He finds an orphan girl named Anya who basically says, look, I don't know anything about this Anastasia chick, but I wanna go to Paris, so I'll do it. But spoiler alert, as they journey to Paris and Dimitri teaches Anya about the Romanov family, Anya's memories come back to her, and she realizes that she really is Anastasia. And joyfully, she reunites with her grandmother. Now, even as a kid, I remember hearing other stories about the possibility that Anastasia had mysteriously survived and escaped during the Russian Revolution, which was actually led by the Bolshe Bolsheviks, a revolutionary political group, not Rasputin. So even though I knew the, the movie wasn't a real account, I still believed that aspects of it could be true. And as it turns out, Mike and Sarah find out that we actually do know exactly what happened to Anastasia and all of the other Romanovs. And sadly, she did not escape. We know this because the soldiers who kidnapped the Romanovs kept journals with detailed accounts of their time with the family, including Anastasia. We also know this because a geologist who heard rumors about where the family died went digging around and found the gravesite. And while initially he didn't find two of the Romanovs, which allowed the rumors of Anastasia's potential escape to grow, the two remaining Romanovs were eventually discovered and all accounted for. But despite all of the evidence we have that Anastasia died along with the rest of her family, the myth of Anastasia's escape continues to permeate our cultural imagination. Now here's my biggest takeaway from the episode. While I know now that I was wrong about pretty much everything related to Anastasia, I like my version of the story better than the truth. 
So I've decided I'm just going to keep believing in the bright, animated, mythical version that I've loved since I was a kid. Because in that version, Anastasia lives happily ever after. I mean, who wouldn't want to believe that? And the very best lie is the one that we want to believe. And we do that all the time, don't we? We're presented with something that is true. But if that truth is confusing or unexpected, makes us shift our worldview, or challenges our perception of ourselves or the world around us, we decide that it's easier to keep believing the truth we've always known instead of the truth that's right in front of us. We have a tendency to favor information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs. And even when something challenges that belief, we give more weight to any evidence that supports what we believe and undervalue or even ignore evidence that we might be wrong, even when that evidence is true. This tendency to look for information that supports rather than rejects our preconceptions seeps in in subtle ways. It shows up when we gather information, but conveniently, the information that we don't like is forgotten about. Or when we interpret information incorrectly so that it says what we want it to say. And this tendency becomes stronger when we're dealing with emotionally charged issues or deeply entrenched beliefs such as politics or religion. Until we become so certain of our beliefs, of our own stories, that we allow it to damage our relationships. Maybe you have a family member or a friend that you have trouble speaking to because one or both of you aren't willing to set aside your own bias. Or maybe you've made an assumption about someone or about their opinion of you and therefore created a wedge between you that otherwise wouldn't exist. Maybe you have a bias that's keeping you stuck in the past and afraid to move forward towards a better future. Or maybe the stories you believe are keeping you in the dark, unable to see the light of Jesus. As we've gone through our sermon series, Signs and Wonders in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus perform miracles and present signs that point to who he is and the work he came to accomplish. And in our passage today that Dr. Padilla read for us, we witness three different groups miss out on what Jesus is doing right in front of them. Three groups of people who choose to believe their own story rather than consider there might be a new story that Jesus is trying to bring to light. Now up to this point, as Chrissy mentioned last week, Jesus has been at the temple for the Feast of Booths, a seven-day-long festival commemorating God's provisions and faithfulness to the people of Israel during their 40 years in the wilderness. And on the last day of the festival, he has a run-in with the Pharisees and the crowds, and things get heated. So Jesus leaves the temple, and as he's leaving, he notices a man, a man who had been blind from birth. Now at this time, those who are blind were treated as outcasts. They were considered to be weak and imperfect. They were separated from the general public, similar to those with leprosy, and typically, they had to resort to begging to survive. They were not viewed as whole, complete people. So most people would have just walked right by the man without so much as a glance. But Jesus saw him. And as he stopped, his disciples asked him a question. Rabbi, 
Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Now, there's a lot that we could unpack with this question. If I could, I would spend the rest of our time this morning just talking about this one question. So at the very least, I want to take a quick detour and say just a few things about it. Now, this question would not have been an uncommon one in Jesus's day. The prevailing cultural and religious belief at the time was that suffering or ailments were caused by sin. They were punishments handed down by God. And the greater the sin, the greater the punishment. And physical blindness would have been considered a pretty intense punishment. However, while it was viewed this way, I want to be sure to say that physical blindness is not a punishment. It also does not make someone less than whole or imperfect. Jesus clearly tells the disciples it was not because of his sin or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. So we can be assured that this man's physical blindness was not the result of God's judgment. I also think that the question of why people suffer is not one that can be discussed neatly in a 25-minute sermon. It's a question that requires a lot of humility and grace, along with acceptance that we might not ever fully understand the reason for every challenge or instance of suffering or disability in a person's life. Because sometimes, suffering is just part of living in our broken world. Yes, sometimes it can also be the result of someone else's choices and words, or even the result of our own unhealthy choices. Our actions do have consequences. But that is not the same thing as suffering being handed down as a punishment from God. And while I believe that the disciples' motivations for asking the question were good, I have experienced firsthand the damage this line of thinking can have because it's a belief that is still held by many people today. I spent the majority of my sophomore year of high school sick with mono, and it had a significant impact on my physical and mental health that year. And one week, I managed to make it to my youth group's Bible study and was sharing with them what a rough year it had been when one of the other students spoke up and said that maybe if I repented, I would start to feel better. Because if I had been sick for so long, it must mean that I had committed a terrible sin and therefore God was punishing me with mono. I left Bible study that day thinking that if that's really what God is like, I want nothing to do with it. Thankfully, I had a couple of people in my life who pointed me to God's goodness and faithfulness. They were a reminder to me that Jesus is with us in the midst of our suffering. And sometimes, mono is just the result of somehow picking up the wrong germs. And here in our passage, just like the other student did with me, we find the disciples seeing what they wanted to see. Instead of seeing a man who had spent years being pushed to the outskirts by people who viewed him as imperfect, the disciples looked at him and saw a theological conundrum, an unsolved riddle. They showed no interest in helping him, but Jesus saw him. And rather than dwelling on the theological puzzle, Jesus saw an opportunity to seek out the activity of God and help the person in front of him. Jesus bent down and spit on the ground, 
made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now this is where things get really interesting. This man who has been blind since birth starts to come across his neighbors. And while nothing about his physical appearance has changed, the neighbors all have trouble believing that the man in front of them is the same man they've always known. Verses eight and nine say, his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. The once blind man is standing in front of them saying that he is the same man they've always known. He even tells them that Jesus is the one who healed him. Yet I imagine that none of the neighbors had ever witnessed a miraculous healing. It's not a possibility that they could even begin to fathom. So instead of believing the man that he's been healed, instead of believing their own eyes that the man they're talking to is the same man they've walked by every day, they decide that he must just be a lookalike. They would rather believe their own story than see God moving right in front of them. Because of their questions and doubts and concerns that the healing took place on the Sabbath, the neighbors decide to bring the man to the Pharisees. So the man tells the Pharisees all about Jesus, about how Jesus put mud over his eyes and once washed away, revealed his healed sight. Well, the Pharisees hear the blind man out, but this is not the first time that they've had a run-in with Jesus performing miracles on the Sabbath. And they were not happy about it. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division among them. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? Some of the Pharisees do start to question their assumptions about Jesus. They see that what he's done is miraculous and they allow that truth to open their minds to the possibility that Jesus could maybe be more than just an ordinary sinner. Because there's no way that an ordinary sinner could heal a man's blindness on any day, much less on the Sabbath. But the other Pharisees are so angry with Jesus for breaking the Sabbath laws they regarded so highly that they refuse to consider the possibility that Jesus is anything but an ordinary sinner and a blatantly disrespectful ordinary sinner at that. And since they can't come to an agreement about who Jesus is, they bring in the man's parents. And the Pharisees ask them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents reply, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. While his parents are able to see that the man in front of them is their son and that he has been healed, they're not able to speak the truth about who Jesus is. Their fear of the Pharisees and of what the Pharisees might do to them holds them back from being able to fully accept the truth. And despite his own parents' testimony that this man was indeed their son, 
and that he had once been blind but could now see. The Pharisees are still not willing to believe the mounting evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Now at this point, just like I decided that I like my version of the Anastasia story better, it seems as if the Pharisees have already decided what they believe about Jesus before even starting to ask the question. As if they're not actually asking with the purpose of really wanting to hear the answers. Instead, they're hunting for information that will support what they already believe. So they bring in the man one more time for questioning and they tell him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once. Don't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses but we don't even know where this man comes from. The Pharisees double down in their convictions, decide that Jesus can't be from God, and they throw the man out of the synagogue. And with that, we see all three groups completely miss out on the fullness of who Jesus is. The neighbors, the man's parents, and the Pharisees were each given the opportunity to witness a miracle to witness the life-changing power of God himself that brings light to the dark, and to stake their claim in believing Jesus to be the Son of Man. And yet each of them, in their own way, chose to remain in darkness. The neighbors couldn't imagine a reality outside of what made sense to them. The blind don't suddenly gain their sight, so this man couldn't be the man they knew. It made more sense to them that this man who could see was just a look-alike. And the man's parents are afraid of what claiming belief in Jesus would mean for their own status and comfort. So they deflect and don't allow the truth to be presented for what it is. And even the Pharisees, the professional Jews who studied and taught the word of God, allowed their dedication to what they've always known to override their ability to open themselves up to new possibilities. They used their pre-established rules about the Sabbath to confirm what they wanted them to confirm. And we, too, often give in to these same mentalities. And unfortunately, we'll never completely stop doing it. Confirmation bias happens naturally because of how our brains are wired. And thankfully, that's not always a bad thing. These tendencies can help us remain confident in our values and beliefs. They help us feel secure, and they help us efficiently filter through the information available to us in the world. It keeps us from feeling overwhelmed by the endless possibilities and perspectives that we are exposed to. But our bias also prevents us from looking at situations objectively. It can lead us to make poor decisions because we didn't consider all of the information needed to make an informed choice. It can cause us to miss out on relationships that would have had a great impact on our lives. Or it could cause us to look past the person in front of us who is suffering or in pain because we think they're just too different from us. 
or maybe that helping them would make us feel too uncomfortable. It can also cause us to miss out on Jesus, even when the truth of who he is is right in front of us. Because Jesus almost always flips our paradigms upside down. His words and teachings are full of ideas that challenge our normal way of thinking. And when confronted with these new ideas, we respond in a way that helps keep us comfortable. We reshape Jesus to fit our narratives rather than letting Jesus reshape us. Which is why we see so many different groups on different sides of the aisle claiming that Jesus is on their side and supporting their vision or mission. And we do this because we like our stories, especially when we feel like the life that we're living is a pretty good one. But what if there are areas in your life that Jesus is moving and your bias is preventing you from seeing it? Preventing you from noticing the dark places that Jesus is wanting to illuminate inside of you so that he can draw you out into the light of a deeper relationship with him. So if we can't stop our brains from operating this way, what can we do? First, just being aware of our own beliefs and personal biases can help us realize when we're being influenced by them. It can also help us be more careful about the ways that we communicate those beliefs to the people around us. And a good way to grow in our awareness is praying that God would give us the patience to see clearly, to keep walking forward with confidence that God is with us, even in the midst of knowing there are things that we just don't know. Second, we can become more curious and expand our minds and be intentional about considering all of the evidence about a situation available to us, rather than holding tightly to just the evidence that confirms our own views. A really easy, fun way to do this is by listening to podcasts like You Are Wrong About or our Haverhill Commons podcast, or by intentionally seeking out podcasts by people who hold opinions that differ from our own. If podcasts aren't your thing, maybe you can read books or articles by authors who think differently than you do, either because of their political leanings, religious beliefs, or way of life. By listening to and reading from different voices, we can allow ourselves to consider the possibility that maybe someone else's viewpoint will help us learn something true, something beautiful about the world around us. And finally, this one is really difficult, I know, but we can be willing to change our minds, to say that we were wrong, that in light of new evidence, we're open to expanding or changing our current beliefs. We really like being right. We think it makes us seem smart and knowledgeable, but more often than not, admitting that we're wrong and owning up to our mistakes is often the wiser choice, as it helps us connect with other people and with Jesus more authentically. I could have continued in the belief that I was told that God was punishing me for my sins by giving me mono. But if I had, I would have missed out on a lifetime of being known and loved by Jesus. I definitely wouldn't be standing up here in this room today and probably would have continued to allow my incorrect assumptions about God to lead me into darkness. Looking back, I'm glad that I allowed others to help show me that God doesn't work that way. And yet, I'm sure that there are other aspects of who God is that I still don't get right. 
because there are still lies that we want to believe, lies that are comforting and attractive. But what would it look like for you to consider what lies you're believing? What perspectives or biases you're holding on to that you could submit to Jesus and ask him to help you see the truth? If we really want to see the world and those around us for what they really are, and more importantly, Jesus for who he really is, we need to take the time to consider what is really going on inside of us and invite Jesus to show us the way out of not just physical darkness, but also spiritual darkness and into the light of truth. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you with each of our stories, our preconceived notions, our biases, the lies that we believe, and we submit them to you. We ask that you would help us open ourselves up to new possibilities, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth, because your truth is better than we can even imagine. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.